So here's the thing. Your mind can be like a sponge, but what's to stop it from being bogged down and too heavy? That's what we're going to talk about. That's what we're going to unpack and unravel in today's solo episode. My name is Chris Lynham, and I am your host of Off the Floor, the show that is all about the learning process, the critical pivots along the way, and the positive ripple effects from those decisions. So let's look at the difference between application and information. So information is low risk. It feels good to accumulate. It's safe to say it is the Hermione Granger part of your brain, and it's pretty academic. Application, on the other hand, is street smarts. It's elbow grease. It's getting your hands dirty. There's this kid I grew up with. His name was Matt, and I remember he told me all about how I should play baseball, and like we were going to be on the same baseball team, and he kept talking about the Dodgers and baseball, and I was really not totally aware of sports I must have been maybe six seven years old and uh, he said you're gonna play in the Dodgers with me and so sure enough my mom and dad look into it and uh, this kid my neighbor he was on this t-ball team called the Dodgers and so next thing you know I'm signed up to be on the Dodgers and I'm playing with Matt and I'm thinking this guy must be so good and I remember our first game together he goes to hit the ball and there, you know, it's T-ball. And, uh, <laughs> and he does about 25 practice swings where he looks like he's about to hit it. And then he stops short. And then he analyzes. And then he resets until literally like his mom in the stands is saying, Matt, just hit it. <laughs> and even us on the team, I have no concept. I've never played baseball before. I just know that I don't want to get hit by a pitch, so T-ball seems like a really safe choice. And then as I'm watching, I'm getting really bored, as any kid would be, or actually any adult that's watching for that matter. And that's sort of the premise of today's show, is that sometimes what we do is we choose to practice and repeat and practice and repeat the information side of what it is that we're trying to accomplish and we leave out the application. There have been plenty of times that I look back on where I was trying to use more information to solve an application problem instead of just going and applying what I had learned. In an article by St. George's University, uh, a doctor, uh, his name is Dr. Bernard Remarcus, he said very few students ever learn how to actually practice medicine in medical school. That comes from residency training and postgraduate practice. So, I mean, there's only so much that you can do with a book, right? There's only so much that you can do with information. So why do we like information? Because it's safe. When I went to take a golf lesson, there was a part of the golf lesson that absolutely mortified me, and that was the golfing part. <laughs> I called Daisy right before my golf lesson, and I said, maybe... I'm probably too busy, and I know that, and she stopped me mid-sentence, and she said, what do you do for a living? Why are you calling me? Why are you trying to cancel your appointment? You want to get better, and I was like, yeah, but I'm so bad. I don't know if I should go and take golf lessons because I'm going to be the worst person, and she said, listen to what you're saying. 
yeah, because you're bad, that's why you take a lesson. And it totally makes sense, and it's embarrassing to even talk about that, but the most comfortable part of the entire golf lesson was actually where they would video record my swing, and we would sit down in this dark room and watch me swing the golf club on video. And it was weird because it's kind of, it was actually dark, so it felt like a bunker, but it was safe because I wasn't on the driving range around all these other people. And that's a little bit like information. The application part of it was me actually hitting the golf ball, embarrassing myself over and over and over again. Not that anyone was watching. Well, something like that kind of happened to me as a dance teacher, and uh, that came in the form of a certification test. So just like any other industry, whether we're talking about you know becoming an accountant or a doctor or lawyer or whatever, dance teachers go through certification. And this is a test that happens usually once or twice a year. And for me, I wanted to be the next great thing. And, uh, and so I wanted to fast track my development. And so I decided to just really pour it on. And so I would stay late at the studio. I would take incredible notes like by notes, I mean I was creating a grail diary that even Indiana Jones's dad would weep when he read it if he could get through my shorthand and my bad graphs and charts and things like that. And I would routinely fall asleep in front of a VHS recording of demonstrations and a big, thick manual that could probably kill somebody if it fell off of a high bookshelf. And I would fall asleep, I'd wake up, and I'd get back to studying. And this would be, you know, 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. So what that led to was a lot of book smarts. I was triggering the Hermione Granger in my brain. I could probably have competed with anybody in the ballroom dance category on Jeopardy. But what was really missing was the dancing part. Well, that didn't get exposed until a few months later. A girl that had first started teaching with me, her name was Aida, and she had left uh, to take care of some family business, and then she ended up getting another job, and then she came back to the studio as an administrator. And I wanted to show her how cool I was and how much I had learned in the time since she had left. And so I said, hey, guess what I can do now? And I started demonstrating some high-level patterns for her in the silver category. And she said, oh, lead me through it. And I said, well, you know, I know you have to start your shift. And she said, oh, no, I'm here early. I want to feel what that, you know, what that level feels like. I've never had a chance to dance that level. And that was the moment where I realized that my time spent on information was much higher and is way out of balance with the actual application. I was able to do the test, but I wasn't really able to dance with a human being through that material which now reminds me of another story, which is my brother who was literally the smartest person that I've ever known. He is a brain that people just plug into and they all get smarter if they're around him. And I'm saying that because when he took his driver's test, he took a very information-focused approach to his driver's test. He failed the behind-the-wheel test, and his choice, when I asked him, I said, so what are you going to do? When are you going to take the test again? He said, well, I'm going to take it again, but I'm going to reread the manual. And the first time that he said that, I was like, okay, that's cool. Like, you know, there's always these obscure things about, like, how many feet before you stop, and maybe you just want to brush up. And so he chose to reread the manual, and then he went and he took his test again, and same thing happened. He just barely did not pass. And so the moment came where I asked him again, what are you going to do differently? And he said, I think what I'm going to do is read and study the Spanish portion of the written material. 
My brother also speaks fluent Spanish, and so that part wasn't surprising. But what was surprising was his train of thought that maybe there was something that they had hidden in the Spanish language version of the DMV manual that they didn't put in the English manual. And uh, had he known how to speak Vietnamese, then he probably would have studied that too. But I remember just being a little shocked by that. I was like, well, why would they do that? Like, why would you feel like that would be the solution? You know, you've done so great on the written test so far. Like, why are you going to go back to the manual? Why don't you just go driving with mom? And so fortunately, my mom did take him out driving. And fortunately, on the third time, he did pass his test. And as crazy as that is, we're talking about a person who's a genius here like certifiable genius. How many of us have ever been in that same situation where we've opted to stick with the bunker? We've opted to stay in our own head. We've opted to choose information that was safe, that we could control over putting ourselves out there with an application where we want to tweak that PowerPoint presentation or we want to fine tune our resume before we take the interview. We wanna practice and repractice our pickup line before you actually go and talk to that person at the bar. We've all done it. So this leads me, of course, the natural segue from here is video games. So a friend of mine, he is affiliated with eSports, which is like pro gaming. It's just becoming a really revolutionary thing. It's becoming such a huge worldwide audience. That's incredible. And my son, Christian, is really interested in gaming, of course, because he's a nine-year-old boy and he's obsessed. And so I reached out to him on Twitter and I said, hey, do you have any tips for me to tell my son? Like, what can I tell him about like trying to become a pro gamer? And his response was so telling and it's so perfect for this episode. He gave me two words and he said, get good. So how do you get good? You know, I laughed when I read it. And essentially when it comes to video games, how do you get good? Well, back in the day, you maybe you had the choice of an instruction manual and they had these strategy guides that you would go and buy for, for 20 bucks. And it was this special encyclopedic version of the instruction manual that would also include some little tips and tricks. And his response was so perfect for how gaming has evolved. There's no more instruction manual. He said, get good. That means that you need to play if you want to get better. Speaking of which, in 2010, which seems like in video game years, the dark ages, well, maybe not the dark ages, because then when I was playing games, that would be the Paleolithic age. But back in 2010, this article by IGN called The Death of the Manual had different experts share why video game companies were making this huge mistake by taking paper manuals out of the games. That some of them talked about what they smelled like and how important it was to have that one-two punch, that you needed to have some of those tips just to get started. Today, instruction manuals for video games are about as relevant as an evening newspaper. And what the video game industry figured out was that the best way to learn was to learn by doing, not by consuming more information. Now, as somebody who actually bought the standalone cartridge of Super Mario Brothers with my Christmas money, it's just funny to think that I actually poured over the instruction manual before I started playing that game. And yet, what I didn't realize was that the game designers had already developed an instruction manual. They developed an intuitive, interactive instruction manual. And that was level one of Super Mario Brothers. That was the best instruction manual. It was the most effective. 
I couldn't even tell you what the instruction manual said, but I remember studying it and poring over it before I actually started playing the game. Now, if you think about it as crazy as that seems now, that would be like reading and rereading your car's owner manual before you actually started driving the car. Like, as soon as you buy your car, now you sit in the parking lot at the dealer, and the dealer comes and knocks on your window, and it's an hour later, and you're like, hang on a second, I've only gotten through half of it. I'm reading about <laughs> the wattage on my headlights. Like you, you don't need all of that information. And yet there's a version of us in some capacities and in some environments where we feel like that's appropriate. There's never going to be a shortage of information. And there's never going to feel like a shortage of space to house that information when it comes to your brain. I mean, you've got the Library of Congress between your ears. So because of that, you could always refine, you could always pack it in, and unfortunately, it feels productive. On the flip side, application is about what can you use now? What is the essential ingredient? Like, what are the two things that you're going to grab out of your house if it was on fire? That's what application is. And until you put yourself in an environment where you can really evaluate what was the most important information that I needed for this particular engagement, then you'll never really know which information is at the highest point of the pyramid. A lot of times we use this analogy of a stick, like a stick can't become a spear just by making the stick longer. So how do you make a stick into a spear? Well, you have to sharpen the edge of it. You've got to turn one edge into this point so that way it'll stick into the target. Well, the sharp edge of that is application. And so with our staff, we're constantly working on how do we work on applying this? How would we know that this is actually working? If you got one thing out of all the information that you gained today, what's the one thing that we could use? And what would be a clue that it's actually working? Jack Benny had that joke where somebody walks up and says, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? And he says, practice, kid, practice. But if you really think about it, is it really practice? I mean, how many people have practiced over and over and over again some type of skill and yet never had the confidence to utilize that skill in public? You know, I just shared a video of a pizza delivery guy who saw a grand piano in somebody's living room and had the confidence not only to say, hey, do you mind if I sit down and play on your piano and I'm a pizza delivery guy, but he sat down and he played Beethoven in front of this family that he had never met before and he was incredibly good. That takes not only practice, but it takes confidence of application. So your first moments of application definitely won't be Carnegie Hall. It might feel like Carnegie Hall. Your heart's gonna be pounding. Your tendency is going to be, no, let me go back to my safe library in my mind. Let me go back and refine my information, but you gotta fight it, and as much as it feels like it, it's not Carnegie Hall. And whether it's a dive bar, karaoke bar, any kind of bar, or just a sales presentation, remember, there's never going to be a shortage of information, but application is the key. And that takes practice. As you journey outside of your comfort zone, consider this podcast as your travel companion. So if you're enjoying it, please go to iTunes, search Off the Floor, and hit the subscribe button. Thanks so much for listening. 